Hello, and welcome to episode 117 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, we have a very special treat. Before he went off to take on some new challenges, our original host, Craig Andera, was kind enough to pre-record a few episodes to help us through with the transition. So it's with just a bit of sadness that I introduce this, the last Craig Andera episode of the CogniCast. This week, Craig is going to be talking to Rebecca Parsons and Neil Ford. But before we get started, I do have a few events to mention. First, there's Closure Bridge happening in Helsinki on January 28th. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And I can tell you from personal experience that Closure Bridge workshops are a lot of fun as well. There's also a Closure Bridge happening in Amsterdam on February 11th. And there's a Closure Bridge happening in Buenos Aires, Argentina on March 10th and 11th. You can find out more about these Closure Bridge events and about Closure Bridge in general by pointing your browser at closurebridge.org. Finally, the Dutch Closure Day will be held in Amsterdam on March 25th. This free one-day event describes itself as the annual gathering of closure enthusiasts and practitioners in the Netherlands. Go to closure.org community events for more information. If you have a closure-related event you would like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that about wraps it up. So on to episode 117 of the Cognicast. Everybody, welcome. Today is Monday, November 21st in 2016, and this is the Cognicast. And today we are extremely pleased, uh, extremely pleased to welcome to the show two guests, two thought workers. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Dr. Rebecca Parsons, the CTO of ThoughtWorks, and Neil Ford, a returning guest, another thought worker. In fact, he has the wonderful, wonderful title of meme wrangler at ThoughtWorks, but I'll let him maybe speak to that a little bit more. But uh, before we go any further, let me repeat, welcome uh, Neil and welcome Rebecca to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so um, we actually have a number of uh, really interesting topics. I think today we've uh, we've been talking about doing the show for quite some time, and I'm glad the the timing finally uh, made sense, and that you were able to take some time out to uh, to to meet with us today. So, like we we start every show with a question about art. Uh, specifically, we asked one of our guests to communicate some experience of art, whatever that might be. It could be a, a painting, a book, a piece of music, um, really anything. I mean, a sunset, uh, any, anything at all. Uh, now, we we uh, flipped a coin or arm wrestled or, uh, I don't know, something before the show. And uh, and uh, we, we said, well, Neil, you're going to you're gonna uh, take our opening question here. So share with us, please, some experience of art. Well, I volunteered for this one because I have a, a, a distinctive story about this because it started with a uh, delayed flight in the Frankfurt airport. I was in Frankfurt trying to fly home and flight was delayed. So I was killing time and they had an exhibit upstairs, a temporary exhibit from Guggenheim, Berlin. And okay, that's cool. You know, it was like three rooms full of art. And I went up there and they had a painting by Mark Rothko 
I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Rothko. He's a 1950s abstract expressionist who mostly he painted uh, fuzzy rectangles. And I looked at that and I said, okay, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is art. I don't understand why this is hanging in a museum somewhere. And it annoyed me enough that I took a deep dive and actually learned a whole bunch of stuff about modern art. And now I understand why that's art and why, you know, you have to understand the context of where it comes from and what Rothko was trying to do. So that kind of happenstance of being delayed on my flight led me down this really interesting path. And so I'm quite the enthusiast of modern art now and go to a lot of uh, museums uh, because of that uh, deep dive that I did. Well, that is awesome, and and in fact, I'm I'm well familiar with your um, interest in Mark Rothko because, um, even though it was many many years ago at this point, maybe four years ago when you were last on the show, um, as our listeners might be aware, we do a custom cover for every show, and you chose as the inspiration for your custom uh, your cover Mark Rothko and our artist Michael Parento did what I thought was a really uh, nice interpretation of Rothko's style into the the cover for your show so uh, I, I, remember I remember that one that. yeah i appreciated that. that that was a nice touch yeah well that's cool stuff um yeah so it's always tempting to just talk on and on about art but uh uh <laughs> you know but I, I think the the two of you have been working on a number of interesting things together um and separately and uh let's let's maybe turn to those and and specifically maybe we could um start with the uh uh start with the the, the thing that kind of got us talking about doing a show in the first place not that we, <laughs> there weren't like 20 things that we could talk about, but um, it turns out the two of you are writing a book together, which is why we said, oh, we should we should have um, we should have Neil and Rebecca on the show to talk a bit about the book. So uh, rather than uh, me trying to describe it any further, um, I uh, I will throw it to whichever of you would like to speak up first about about this uh, book that to me sounds very very interesting indeed. Okay, well well I'll start with that. Um, so I've been talking along with, uh, with Neil for several years about this idea of evolutionary architecture. And in fact, it, um, I listened to a talk that, that Neil was, was giving, um, I don't even remember what conference it was now, um, and he was actually talking about emergent architecture. And so in true ThoughtWorks style, um, Neil and I had to have a discussion about that. And I felt quite strongly that, that although I think the concept of emergent design is the right one. Talking about emergent architecture made it just seem too ad hoc. And um, I was always talking about it from the concept of evolutionary architecture. And the distinction that, that, that I draw there is that when you think about evolutionary computation, things like gen genetic algorithms, ge genetic programming, et, et cetera, you have an objective fitness function something that constitutes your goal. And you're attempting through the, through the various uh, operators and, and such to move towards, uh, closer to that goal. And that's how we're starting to think about evolutionary architecture is to say, for a particular system and a particular organization at a particular time, we can actually define a fitness function for what we're trying to achieve in the architecture. And this is this notion of evolutionary architecture. And so with, uh, with another colleague of ours, Pat Kwa, in the, uh, uh, from the UK, uh, we are putting together a book on evolutionary architecture uh, to describe the techniques uh, that, that support 
an evolutionary architecture, what it, what it takes to create and maintain one, uh, what these fitness functions look like and what role they play in an architecture, as well as some of the, the team considerations and organizational structure and such. Um, and actually, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to, to, to Neil for this, one of the important parts was actually being able to come up with a concise definition of what evolutionary architecture is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, and that's that was actually when we uh, so like she said, the three of us have been talking about different aspects of this for a while. And when we finally got together and kind of pooled all of our stuff and put it together and then started thinking hard about a definition that really made us understand uh, really kind of the implications of this a lot more deeply. Uh, so I can give you uh, our working definition, which all the rest of our stuff is based on, uh, which is an evolutionary architecture supports incremental guided change as a first principle across multiple dimensions. And so let me pull apart different pieces of that definition. Uh, the first was the guided change part of this definition. That's what Rebecca was talking about when she was talking about fitness functions. So when you think about the act of software architecture, one of the things that distinguishes architecture from design work are these non-functional requirements or quality of service attributes or illities that you have to define. And when you choose a particular architectural pattern, like a layered monolith or microkernel or microservices or service-oriented architecture, you're choosing that architectural pattern at least in part and in, in many cases in large part because of the illities that you need to support. You need to support scalability or security or performance or some sort of characteristic like that. Uh, what we're trying to do is make evolvability one of those kind of illities. And that's what you can use fitness functions for in an architecture is when you've chosen and what those illities are. Those are kind of the dimensions you're trying to protect as your architecture evolves. You can write fitness functions in the form of tests or metrics or other sorts of verification mechanisms to make sure that as your architecture evolves in unexpected ways, it doesn't break the core reasons you chose this architecture to begin with. So that's kind of the uh, guided change and the multiple dimensions part. The incremental part of this definition, uh, the definition again was uh, it supports incremental guided change as a first principle across multiple dimensions. The incremental part of this is really about uh, operational agility and the ability to get new versions of your software into your architecture as rapidly as possible. This is what we talk about in the continuous delivery world is cycle time. That's one of the key things we measure in continuous delivery is uh, you measure cycle time by when the, the clock starts, when someone starts working on some new feature and ends when it shows up in production. And one of the overarching goals is to make cycle time shorter and shorter. And if you have a really short cycle time, that means that you can evolve your architecture much more quickly because your cycle time is actually how fast you can get new generations into your architecture. Mm. There, there, there's also an important d distinction. Um, Neil mentioned that to the illities we want to add evolvability, and that is distinct from adaptability. And the reason that distinction is important is when, when you talk about an adaptive system. People very often think, okay, I'm going to build in knobs and levers and, and dials of things that I might want to configure. But that, that presupposes you know where that variability is going to come from. And by focusing on evolvability, what we're saying is 
we don't necessarily know what avenues of change we're going to have to support because we don't know what changes are going to come in the business environment or from the business model or regulatory changes or customer expectations um, or technology changes. And so rather than trying to predict it so that we can build in you know, a, a switch to throw or a dial to turn or a parameter or anything like that, we want the system as a whole to have the characteristic of evolvability, that regardless of the change, we are in a position to make that change uh, with as little pain as possible. We obviously can't do away completely with the pain. Um, this isn't any more of a silver bullet than anything else is. But, um, but we want to focus on the ability to make fundamental changes to the architecture and to the, whether it's to the technology stack, whether it's to the uh, integration boundaries or the integration technique, um, all of those things are, are up, up for grabs. And kind of another way of saying that is we want to be able to make changes to the architecture without significantly increasing technical debt. Because that's really what adaptability does, is it gives you change at the cost of some sort of technical debt. For, so, for example, uh, you can uh, change all sorts of behaviors in an architecture with things like feature toggles. Uh, and you could make pretty broad changes, but that's really a form of technical debt because you're you're you know you're adding all this you know extra logic within your system, and it's kind of a temporary patch. Where, as Rebecca said, we're talking about fundamental change here. Where uh, microservice architecture is a good example of one of these, where because all these services are so extremely decoupled from one another, you can uh, fundamentally change one of them without having a negative impact on any of the others and, and truly evolve that system rather than just adapting something by putting, you know, duct tape and bailing wire on it. So th this is re really interesting stuff. I, I think, uh, you know, I've been a consultant for a long time. Uh, I know that obviously uh, you, you both have extensive consulting experience as well. And so you know that this is the type of thing that a lot of organizations desperately want, right? They feel saddled. They feel constrained. They feel weighed down by a lot of their existing um, systems and decisions, past decisions that have been made. And so I, I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, this is about moving towards a place where uh, your decisions are not your decisions, but the, 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 your infrastructure, your assets, they feel lighter, right? Like you can, they're not holding you back, right? So that you can move more quickly. Is that, I mean, does that kind of capture the kind of the high level feeling of, of the advantages you're hoping to achieve? Well, absolutely. And one of the things that we're attacking, so kind of another way of saying that is we think predictability is shot in software architecture. And it's because of, uh, I think Rebecca originally kind of identified the, the verbiage around this. So it's, the, it's because of the dynamic equilibrium of the software development ecosystem. So when you think about the software development ecosystem, and that encompasses all the tools and frameworks and libraries and best practices and all those things that we use to build software, uh, it's certainly in an equilibrium state because we can build stuff against it, but it's also extremely dynamic in that sudden changes can occur in it that fundamentally change the way you think about it. A great example of a recent occurrence is when Docker showed up in our ecosystem. Because when Docker's there, you can't not think about that and the implication of that as you start building stuff. So if you're an enterprise architect, two years ago, you wrote a five-year plan and you didn't include Docker. As soon as Docker hits the ecosystem, it, the equilibrium changes, and now you can take that five-year plan and throw it away. So exactly to your point, we believe that companies are very interested in this because you can no longer predict 
against this dynamic ecosystem. And so if you can't predict anymore, then if you can evolve with a lot less pain, then you can, no matter how it evolves and changes, you've got a much, much better fighting chance of being able to accommodate that change. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is um, I agree that enterprises and, and organizations have wanted, wanted to be free of their legacy. Um, but it's actually only been recent, recently that uh, organizations didn't see evolutionary architecture as somehow irresponsible. Um, the architects and the organizations wanted to cling to those five-year roadmaps because they thought that was what it meant to do good architecture. They, you know, you 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 had this path that you were marching down, and you had these architectural initiatives that you were undertaking, and it's it's is only recently, and I think some of this has to do with the advent of continuous delivery, which allows people to feel a bit better about um, uh, their ability to make fundamental changes and to put things into uh, into production more safely. Uh, but we've been fighting a battle, really, with people who call themselves architects about whether this is, this is even a good idea. What's the... Uh... What's the fear there? I mean, so, I mean, it seems to me that if you have an idea and you know you're going to do it, um, if, if you can say, and I know I'm simplifying the, the concept you presented, but if you can say you can have it in production in you know, N weeks as opposed to two N weeks, right, you're reducing cycle time to half what it was, that seems like a good thing, but there must be some objection that is seemingly reasonable to the people that are making it. Well, I think it gets back to the predictability argument. Um, the The role of an architect uh, in an enterprise is to protect the asset value of of the technology stack of of the of the technology landscape. And conventional wisdom was that you wanted to be able to uh, predict how much that was going to cost, where it was going to go, what resources the organization would have to uh, make available for this. And um, for a while, that actually worked. Um, and, and convincing an organization that you can't necessarily tell them where they're going to be in two years when they're used to being able to do that, well, that, that is sometimes hard for them to, to get over. The other thing, too, is that if you want to really start implementing this, you have to start changing a lot of behaviors in, you know, the way you develop software, the way operations works, the way your DBAs work. And, you know, uh, I, you've been a consultant. I tell you what, we'll, we'll give you the job of go telling all the DBAs that they have to fundamentally change the way they've been working for the past few decades and because it's going to be better for us. And then we'll uh, we'll let you uh, let us know how that goes. Uh, we may want to have a discussion about rates before I undertake that uh, particular <laughs> engagement. But yeah, no, I hear you completely. Um, so that's so yeah. So I, I wonder if you could let's maybe go one more step deeper in the rabbit hole, right? So we've decided this is a good idea. Now we're starting to look at our processes because this seems like um, a very it, it involves technology, but it, it seems like more than something like, say, what language I'm choosing. It has to do with process. So what, what sort of, as I move in this direction, in this, in this world, what, what do my processes start to look like? How, are they, how is my organization different from what it was before I made the decision to adopt this approach? 
Well, in many ways, from a process standpoint, so this is one of the payoffs of continuous delivery and all those engineering practices and continuous delivery around modern DevOps and, you know, getting a lot better at being more agile with, uh, you know, provisioning machines and, you know, getting things into deployment pipelines and getting better at testing so you have better automatic kind of verifiability. Uh, That incremental change part of our definition actually encompasses all those kind of uh, operational concerns. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they started doing continuous delivery, they did it just for the, the benefit of doing continuous delivery stuff because it increases their engineering efficiency. But it also, once you have all those things in place, you start getting ancillary benefits. And building an evolutionary architecture is one of the ancillary benefits that you can reap from that because it gives you the mechanism by which you can start making a lot more aggressive change at the architectural level. So let me give you an example of that, one of these examples of what we call incremental change. So let's say that uh, you are Widget Co. Actually, I've come up with new names for this today at the gym. (laughs) Uh, uh, They're going to be two companies, uh, Acme Co. and Penultimate Co. And Penultimate, of course, is going to be always in the second place. Uh, So Acme Co. has a website where they show all of their widgets. And one of the things that their customers can do is star rate uh, the widgets that Acme Co. is selling on their website. Um, and they, so they, within their uh, uh, architecture, it's a microservice architecture with 21st century DevOps practices, they have a star rating service that handles all those chores. Uh, well, then one day they release a better star rating service that lets you do half star ratings. Uh, and then they don't force any of the other services to start using it. They just make it available in their architecture. Uh, and then the other services, as they want to, will start migrating over to that better rating service until no one's using the old one anymore. And then you kind of get rid of that one because you don't need it anymore. That's an example of uh, the operational side of an evolutionary architecture because you have to have an architecture that has the right size granularity so that you can make changes on an ongoing basis. And really, how how aggressive you want to be with change drives how granular you want the pieces of your architecture to be. So, you know, if you want to change just uh, chunkier things, uh, you can do that. But if you want to get down to really fine things, you can change those. And, uh, of course, the smaller things are, typically the faster you can make changes to them. So, I mean, so, yeah, so that's a bunch of interesting things in there. I mean, so the, the, the aspect of evolutionary architecture, the way that you know that you've arrived at evolutionary architecture was the fact that you were able to make that change. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, that's certainly part of it. It's, it's really the ability to be able to make change in your architecture in a, in a foundational way without like, driving your technical debt way up. So in other, in other words, saying, you know, being able to change the structure of your architecture uh, without uh, having a negative impact on any of the characteristics you chose that architecture for. Okay. And so you mentioned that continuous delivery, which, you know, in, includes, among other things, um, you know, the ability to test your um, system in an automated way and other forms of automation mm-hmm. um, is, is one enabling key of that. But what, what are there other decisions that the organization would have had to have made um, that would have let them get there? Or is, or is continuous delivery practices sufficient? Well, from a technical perspective, a lot of, of what you need uh, is enabled by continuous delivery. Uh, but I think organizationally, there has to be uh, the, the commitment to time to market being, uh, being a critical factor and that, uh, that it is actually okay 
to have the um, have the have the changes in the underlying arch architecture, and very often that that is in part an acknowledgement that some of these things might, from a from a uh, monetary perspective or a headcount perspective, cost more. Um, if you're going to, um, it, we we all know that something that is that is locked down and standardized is is less expensive than something uh, that that allows for more more variability and flexibility. And if you have uh, changes in the technology stack, if you have you know a, a document database as well as a relational database, you need someone who knows about document database performance. You need someone who knows about relational database performance. And so, um, the organization has to value the the ability to make these changes more rapidly enough to to accept the cost that comes along with this. And and so you said, well, you know, it, is it anything beyond continuous delivery? But it's continuous delivery beyond just what developers experience because you have to get all of your data stuff in, in line with this as well. Because if you've got a non-trivial system, it's probably going to have data dependencies. And so you have to have an evolutionary data approach to that as well. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Promode and Scott Ambler, wrote a book called Refactoring Databases. And the subtitle of that book is Evolutionary Database Design. Uh, and it came, it's just had its 10-year anniversary. So I'm, we're now saying that that's a book that was just about exactly 10 years ahead of its time because that goes hand in hand with all this evolutionary architecture stuff is the ability to evolve your data as well. Yeah, and you, you do need to take a quite an expansive definition of continuous delivery. Some people um, think of continuous delivery as only, okay, well, I've got an automated script to production, and, and there is so much more to it that, than that. So you really do have to think of of the uh, the various aspects of of provisioning of, of machines and the automated testing and the automated deployment and um, the, the the change management that goes goes into managing the data pipelines and the data dependencies and you know the organizational structures that that you you put around uh, around that that continuous delivery process so it is it it is a very broad definition of continuous delivery that that is really the technical enabler of this but let me, uh, so I was talking about continuous delivery as a building block to an evolutionary architecture. Let's talk about what evolutionary architecture is a building block to. Because once you have that kind of architecture in place, it makes it much easier to do things like multivariate testing against your users. And so now you can do a lot more data-driven development because now you, you've made it trivial. You, in fact, you've made it part of your architecture to be able to put two minor variations of things out and have some people see one and some see the other and gather data about them. And one of the building blocks to that kind of capability is having an architecture that's flexible enough to allow you to make incremental change and to be able to operationalize different, slight different versions of things uh, without any trouble. Mm-hmm. And to reduce the risk of that experimentation, because one of the things that, that we're we're learning is as as well is, it's becoming, it, the 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 pace of change is such that we need to be able to respond quickly, uh, grab new ideas from wherever we can find them and experiment with them. And anytime you try to do innovation, anytime you you run an experiment, that experiment may fail, um, and 
if you're unsure about your ability to safely put something into production, running an experiment is even scarier because not only may the experiment fail, but we might actually break something when we're running the experiment because we don't have confidence in that overall process. And part of what um, in many organizations drive such a long cycle time is that they aren't confident in their ability to safely deliver into, into production. And so, you know, getting, getting that, that rigor around how you put things in pr production and then how you roll them back is part of what is enabled by evolutionary architecture, by continuous delivery. And it, it does then, as, as Neil points out, allows you to become a much more data-driven organization than you could have been. And it allows you to uh, be much more innovative. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the example of the. Uh, I was nodding. <laughs> it's a podcast, and I'm nodding, but um, I was listening. So you know, the example of being able to do those types of experiments, the A/B testing of Bennett organizations, where they were able to do that, and uh, it was very valuable. I mean, and I think you, you make excellent points about that, and that that helps. Um, I I wonder if we could take it down even. Well, actually, let me ask this question. So. Um, where do you see the industry at? I mean, are we at the point where this is an obvious next step, but maybe nobody has really put this into play yet, or it's something that you're starting to see um, out there in the world that certain uh, forward-thinking players have begun to see the benefits of, or it's common and we just don't hear about it, or where are we at with this this thinking? I think what we're doing is putting a name and unifying some ideas that are kind of floating around out there right now that don't have a kind of a, a unifying framework to stitch them together. And let me give you a good example of that. So one of the uh, so we were talking about fitness functions earlier. One of the things you do in an evolutionary architecture is define fitness functions around the parts of your architecture that you don't want to break. And we've further identified two kinds of fitness functions, atomic ones, which can be run against kind of a singular context, but also ones that we call holistic function, fitness functions that need to be run within a shared context. And let me give you a great example of a holistic fitness function that you probably didn't think of it this way before now, but that's a perfect description of what it is, which is Netflix's Chaos Monkey. So, you know, Netflix runs entirely on AWS, and they got worried about, you know, what happens if AWS starts misbehaving, and so they created this utility, this tool, the Chaos Monkey, that they set loose in their ecosystem, and it drives latency up, and it makes things misbehave within their ecosystem. So, in a way, and they're basically testing their resiliency, because one of the important illities that Netflix identified was we want our system to be really resilient because it's so, uh, you know, so widely distributed. But... The Chaos Monkey is not something that they run at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Oh, yeah, we're going to run the Chaos Monkey. It actually runs all the time in their ecosystem. So every service that they build, they have to build with the understanding that it has to withstand the Chaos Monkey, which means it also incidentally withstands all those other service disruption stuff that might happen that the Chaos Monkey is such a representative of. We're calling that a holistic fitness function. So we're actually giving that a name. And so a lot of architects think about illities and being able to test illities like scalability, et cetera, but they don't have a good unified way of thinking about how often do we test these things and how regularly do we, do we test these things? Do we do these on a cadence? A lot of them are done on an ad hoc basis or because they're kind of cumbersome, you know, they're, they're done uh, 
Security is one of those things. We have an anti-pattern called the security sandwich where you just do some at the beginning and some at the end and hope nothing bad happens in the middle. Um, but if you think about all those things as fitness functions at the architectural level, now you, you have sort of a unifying way of thinking about them because another part of this incremental change thing idea and also related to continuous delivery is this deployment pipeline mechanism that's quite common on those projects. And one of the, the, one of the things the deployment pipeline does is run a series of tests, including fitness function tests. So that's the mechanics of how you make sure these fitness functions are applied on a regular basis is use things like the deployment pipeline to run these fitness functions. And of course you have, may have some ongoing things like the chaos monkey running, but so we're basically just taking these disparate kinds of things and saying, well, these are really just that it's a fitness function for verifying how resilient or how uh, exility your architecture is. So I have a question about this. So, so I'm trying to understand when I hear fitness function and uh, it's, it's a great concept, but you know, when you're using it in a, in a strict, uh, strictly quantitative environment, it, it, it yields a scalar number or at least some quantity that can be compared, right? So you can hill climb, you can say this solution was strictly better than the one that came before it and therefore we will replace it with the, uh, the, the prior one. Um, but I think about something like uh, Chaos Monkey, and it's hard for me to think about, or the other things that you mentioned, it's hard for me to think about how you arrive at a scalar measure. I mean, you could say, well, the, my throughput's higher, but my, or my throughput's higher, but my latency is also a little higher. Is that better or worse? It's not really a scalar quantity that you can say is strictly better or worse necessarily. So is there some art in arriving at that, or is this a, an analogy rather than an exact um, uh, comparison or what, what am I missing? Well, well, you, you need to think about it not as, as, a, as a simple, uh, basically one-dimensional fitness function. This, and this is where this across multiple dimensions comes in. The conversation you have to have uh, is to decide what is, what is the trade-off? Um, what is more important to me? Is latency more important than throughput? Yes or no? If, if latency is more important than if latency... Um, goes up, but throughput uh, is, is better, you're probably going to back the change out because that doesn't respect your overall balancing. Um, and over time, those balance, the, the, the balancing equation might change. And so we can think of the atomic fitness functions as, as measuring things like throughput or latency, et, et, et cetera. But then you also have to say, look, from a collective perspective, am I moving in the right direction? Am I making the, the right decisions? Are, what are the things that are most important to me um, in my architecture? And those are the things I'm going to prioritize. Those are the things that, that, that we're going to make decisions around. Um, so it is definitely, it's not a single, uh, a, a single uh, dimensional fitness function. It's actually a multi-dimensional fit, fitness function that has to balance across all of those different abilities. And sometimes you're going to trade them off mm -hmm. uh, because you, you can't you can't maximize all of them. Too many of the, those things are, are incompatible with each other. Well, in some ways, you can think of something like Chaos Monkey as being a whole collection of, of Boolean scalars. Is it does it resist when I turn the server off to or false? Oh, true. OK, well, that means it was successful. So you know, we are testing something there. It, a lot of times, I mean, uh, people mathematically here function. And they expect something like, you know, especially all you uh, functional uh, programming uh, <laughs> uh, guys, uh, you expect a very specific kind of, uh, of uh, connotation to that. But we're using the looser 
function, uh, fitness function definition from uh, evolutionary computing, which is basically evaluating, is this one better than the last right, one? Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes total sense, actually. I, I just wanted to make sure I understood the analogy. But I think, yep. I think uh, Neil, you, you and Rebecca helped me understand that, that uh, there is, in fact, a, a, uh, as you say, a, a fitness value that comes out. But, but that a human or a team of humans are involved in, in making that judgment based on the quantitative data, uh, whether it's Boolean or some sort of continuous value, value, like a throughput that you collect. And of course, we do this sort of thing all the time. I really still like analogies like that personally, because it gives you, and I think you've used this word a couple times, sort of a mental or phrase, a, couple, a mental framework for, mm -hmm. for doing it rigorously, as opposed to something that you kind of knew you were doing already, but you never really thought about it. So yeah, that, that actually helps me understand that a lot. And in fact, we identify some fitness functions as being manual uh, on sure. purpose, like legal requirements. You may have you may have a medical system that, as your architecture evolves, there are certain legal things that you can't violate. And so, deployment pipelines have the mechanics, the the, the ability to have manual stages. And so, but see again, that's one of those things that there you're not really most places are not unifying thinking about scalability and thinking about verifying legal requirements as the same mechanism, mm -hmm. but they really are the same mechanism. You're protecting some aspect of your architecture or your system. And by unifying them, that, that gives you, you know, a regular way to think about them and a regular cadence to apply them with. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the, the, the other thing, go, going back to, to that mental framework, the discussion that, that the organization has about how do we balance these LEDs, you know, what are the ones that are most important to us for this particular system at this particular time? Um, that that discussion is a, is critical to understanding what it is um, that that is important that's going to drive our architectural de decisions, and it's a great way to get alignment, and it's also a great way to allow teams to be empowered to make more local decisions. If you have a, a global standard that says this is what we're trying to achieve. These are our various architectural fitness functions within this structure, respecting this fitness function, do what's the right thing for your individual project. So it, it, it provides a communication mechanism and something that, that, is, that is objectively testable um, that teams can use to make more local architectural decisions. This is good stuff. When's the book out? <laughs> my my <laughs> guesstimate is we're probably 80 85 percent done with it now so we're hoping sometime early next year since we'll have some time to do some uh, integration and other stuff over the holidays awesome i'm really looking forward to reading it um this we are too yeah yeah right <laughs> of course uh no it's good i'm really glad that you were able to come and talk about it because i think it's um it's definitely one to watch out for um gosh so i wonder if we could take a uh, maybe a right turn. We come back to the book, perhaps. But um, there's something I definitely want to make sure we talk about. And I'm sorry, I don't have the reference in front of me, but I believe that uh, ThoughtWorks was recent was recently the recipient of an award related to diversity and technology. Am I am I correct about that? Yes. Um, there is an organization called the Anita Borg Institute for Women and Technology, and one of their programs is the top company award, which is, um, they, they give it away annually. It is very numerically driven. So they ask a series of questions of organizations about the representation of, of women in technical roles across, um, across organizational levels. 
and uh, this year 60 companies uh, submitted their data and that data is 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 very rigorously vetted and um, and then they select a, a winner from that group and we were we were the we were the winner this year congratulations very excited about it yes so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the uh, the things that uh the award considers, and then um, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on the broader issue as well. So the uh, so the award looks at the representation of women um, at the entry level, um, at the mid level, the senior level, and the executive level. And um, currently, the award is is North America based. Um, so even though many global organizations participate, they look at your North America numbers, and uh, they look at at the overall percentage of of women at these at these various levels. And um, uh, they've done a lot of work to standardize the definitions, so we know that you know our definition of mid level, uh, how that relates to say um, uh, BNY Mellon, who was last year's winner. Uh, how how those how those things com compare to each other, and then it's it's just a, a, a straightforward co comparison. Uh, and in this case, we were uh, we were above everybody at all four levels, uh, which was really quite exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, and in in terms of of what it takes, I think there uh, there are several factors and and. You know, what, one of the things they put out in their report as well is an analysis of uh, what's in common amongst companies that do better than average versus worse than average within that sample group. Um, and explicit tra uh, training around, uh, around the importance of diversity, things like unconscious bias, is one of the factors that, that is prevalent among the organizations that that came out better than average um, the the focus on um, on advancement uh, addressing issues of unconscious bias um, are, are, are some of the other things that, that that you'll see I think one of the things that really distinguishes us is the extent to which we've try to move out of the normal hiring pools to look for uh, to look for talent um, and we invest a lot um, our graduate program um, we we have something called ThoughtWorks University that, that runs in uh, in India and all of our all of our graduate hires go through that it's a five-week program in addition particularly when we're bringing people from non-computer science backgrounds um, uh, we invest a lot in training them how to be good software developers, and um, I think that's one of the ways that that we've been able to uh, attract and retain good people, uh, both men and women, is the level of investment that we make in training and career development and leadership development opportunities. So the training you're talking about is um, training related to. Um to the like direct job skills, like you know, uh, creating software, or it's it's training related to understanding uh, diversity in the workplace, or, or it's both. I'm not sure I sorted that out. Yes, it, it, it's both. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. In interesting. So, Rebecca, I'm I'm wondering, out of all the questions I I could ask, uh, maybe I'll ask, 
what what it I mean, it seems like ThoughtWork is doing pretty well on this count. I'm I'm sure like all organizations that are focused on <laughs> things like continuous improvement in software, you no doubt would say that there's farther to go. But I wonder whether you have any advice for other organizations uh as to how best to uh get started um down the same road, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, there there are a couple of things. The the first obvious uh, point is if you don't measure it, you're not going to move the needle. Um, but there are a lot of companies that measure it and say, oh my, isn't that terrible? It hasn't gotten any better. Next slide. Um, and that's not helpful either. It actually takes a lot of focus over an extended period of time to move the needle. And in particular, it requires focus when there's a short-term need and your short-term business case says, we need to fill these positions right away. You know, I, need, you know, I need to staff up you know, uh, 20 new developers. Um, it's easy to find 19 men and one, women, one woman, and then all of a sudden you're, you're back to where you were before. Uh, and so it is, it's sustained focus and making some of those hard decisions that no, you, you, you have to ensure you have a diverse pool. Um, when, when we do external searches, we require our external search agencies to, to bring us a diverse pool. And they haven't fulfilled their contract unless they bring us a pool that is, is more representative of, of the population. We do that internally when we staff positions or when we form management groups and such. We look at the composition. You know, what is the gender balance? What is the re representation uh, from our um, pr from our global South com countries? Are we are we pulling from those diverse perspectives? And I, I think I think part of what really has made a difference for us. There's all sorts of literature on uh, on the business case for for diversity. That you know, companies with with more diverse leadership teams, they do better, particularly. Uh, when uh, when the economy is is going south or when the when a company is at, is at risk, they do better with diverse leadership. So the business case is is clear, but we also feel quite strongly that it's the right thing to do. Uh, when you look at the statistics of people leaving technology, women leave technology uh, at a significantly greater rate. Uh, Upwards of uh, one study I saw, it was 41% of the women who, who start in technology will drop out of high tech. Um, and the rate is about 17% for men. So obviously there's something in our industry that is driving women away. Uh, conventional wisdom says it, it has to do with, with additional family responsibilities, but many surveys have shown that only about 25% of the women that leave, leave because of their family circumstances. More of them are about the culture of our industry, um, their, their feelings of, of career stagnation, that they don't have opportunities for, inv or for advancement, and it's the culture that's driving them away. And so I don't agree with people who assert that all of the women who want to be in technology are in technology, because I've seen too many of them who've left because it's just not worth putting up with you know, with with some of the 
some of the behavior, some of the toxic environment that does exist in places in our industry. So I, uh, I wonder if I, I hate to put you on the spot, but I wonder if I could get you to give advice to someone like me um, who is interested in diversity in technology. I have two daughters. The older one says she wants to be a programmer. I mean, she's 12, so who knows? But, you know, I would like her to go into an environment where she can be successful and feel comfortable and happy. Um, and it's uh, filled with a lot of people who look like me um, and who maybe a lot of them even feel like me, which is I'm, I feel like I, I agree with you, right? Like I want those things. But my fear is that I have, you know, unconscious behaviors or uh, I'm, I'm uneducated in certain ways that I am contributing to that, um, uh, to that culture in ways that I was not aware of. So like what, what would you say to someone like me around like how to assess your behavior or maybe even specific behaviors that you've seen that you believe to be unconscious? You, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm trying to get at, you know, I'm sure there's a ton of our audience out there who are, who are male and are nodding and are saying, yes, this is good stuff. But like I'm sure that collectively we are still – somehow part of the problem. So I, I wonder if you can help us out in any way. Well, I, I can start out with one, which any any behavior that you feel like would be feel right at home in a fraternity is probably not a good thing on a software project. <laughs> sure. And I think that one is one of the, I think that class of things is fairly obvious, but I feel mm -hmm. like, um, you know, th there's got to be more to it than that. Like, even sure. if it's, and I mean, maybe I'll just put, well, Rebecca, I, I think you understand the question perfectly yeah. well. I'll throw it to yeah. you. Yeah, and I, I think one of the first things is to acknowledge the existence of bias. And we're all human beings, and human mm. beings don't we, – we get defensive when we feel like we're being attacked or uh, like, like we're being judged. And people hear, hear that word bias – and they immediately say, oh, I'm not biased. You know? And consciously, you might be right. But we all exhibit unconscious bias. And women are just as guilty of this as men. Not to quite the same degree, but all of the studies that you'll see, uh, evaluation of resumes for a job. And they'll, they'll change it from an obviously male to an obviously female name. And both men and women are less likely to hire the, the, the woman, and if they recommend hiring the woman, uh, they will recommend a lower starting salary for the woman. And both men and women do this. And so we, we have to first get past this idea um, that we're bad people because we're biased. We're not bad people because we're biased. We're bad if we don't acknowledge the bias and try to overcome it. So when you're faced with, with a situation, um, look at how you were evaluating people. Um, one of the things many studies show, for example, is men are promoted on the basis of potential and women are promoted by the basis of achievements. So when you're looking to fill a position or to promote somebody and you say, oh, well, I'm not sure she's ready for it, but I know he can do it, um, stop yourself and say, okay, is that, am I actually applying the same criteria to evaluate the readiness of these two people. Uh, stop yourself when you say, oh, she's just not a cultural fit. 
well, what's the basis for that? Maybe it's true. Maybe there, maybe there is something ab about that individual in the culture. But very often, this lack of culture fit is shorthand for she just doesn't look like me. And we're all more comfortable hiring people who look like us. There's what, a great non-tech example of that uh, that just came up. The uh, show's uh, Full Frontal with Samantha B. Uh, when she hired her writing staff, she purposefully did blind auditions, and she ended up with the most diverse writing staff in all of TV. And they've done some write-ups about how you know how good her writing staff is because she has so much diversity. Yeah. You know, and and so doing things like that, you know, blind reviews where possible, um, having a diverse pool of people interview, uh, forcing yourself to look at a diverse pool. Um, and then also thinking about uh, just some just some of the the, the minor things. Um, very often, when I'm in a meeting, I'm the only woman, and men will come up and ask me for a cup of coffee because they assume I have to be an admin. Um, you probably don't want to drink my coffee. I don't. Drink <laughs> I don't drink it myself, so it's not going to be very good. Um, um, so, so it, you know, it, it's things like that. When when you meet a woman at, at a conference, don't assume she's a plus one for a man who's there. Um, assume she's there because she's in, interested and have the same kind of conversation about the content of the conference as you would if you were talking to a man. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic advice. I really appreciate that. I, I wonder if I could ask a, a meta question, if you will which is how do I, um, you know, as a, what, is there a good word for like, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm the majority, right? Like I'm a white, um, you know, middle-aged male in our industry. Anyway, whatever the word for that is, is, is there a right or even a good, if there's not a right way to, to talk about this? I mean, I think we're having a great conversation, but, um, you know, this stuff, and it, you know, I'm not apologizing, but I think it's the fact that a lot of people in my demographic are uncomfortable talking about this, right? Because as you said, there's an acknowledge you have to acknowledge that you have bias. We all have bias, and uh, in this case, I'm on the benefiting side of that bias, right? So it can be uncomfortable to talk about it. So, do you have any advice to to people who might be in that situation on how to bring this topic up? Because maybe I'd be curious to hear if you agree. It feels to me like conversations like this one are one of the things that can maybe make it be better. Yes, I do, I do, I do think I can. And I think one of the, one of the approaches um, is to think about what really constitutes fair. So one, one of the uh, discussions we very often get, get into is, um, well, if you're faced with, with a hiring choice and you have an equally qualified man and woman and you pick the woman because she's a woman, you're being unfair to the man. And one of the ways I reply to that is, well, what if they were both men and you only have one position so you can only choose one and you're going to pick something? You know, maybe it's the basketball team they root for or maybe it's, you know, uh, the school they went to or, you know, maybe you know, they they play the same video game you do, or maybe they don't play the same video game, so they won't challenge your supremacy at the, at the video game. You're, you're going to pick something. 
in that context, people never say it's, it's not fair. But as soon as it's a man and a woman, it's getting, it's, it's not fair to pick her because she's a woman. Um, and I think we need to rethink that notion of fairness. Um, is it fair that um, if people always recruit at only a certain set of schools, women who self-select into maybe tier two schools because they, they don't think they could ever get into a tier one school, is it fair that you know, Google and Amazon will never hire them because they'll never see them. How, how is it not, how, how is it fair to the people that you can't see? Um, and so I think that's one way. And, and the other way, um, and the other thing I think that's important about these conversations is that um, we, we try to keep them respectful you can't help the fact that you're a white middle-aged male. I can't help the fact that I'm a woman. We have to be able to have a respectful conversation that isn't accusatory, um, uh, but that is also not dismissive because you, you are the person in the privileged position right now, as is Neil. Um, and by accepting that fact, then you can start to see, okay, well, what, what are the, what are the things that I take for granted because I am in this privileged position and what can I do to extend protection or extend opportunity, um, to someone who does not have that privilege. And the realization that contraction of privilege is not oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I just is I love. I mean, that's, I especially love the um, the example you gave at the beginning of that that answer with uh, where you said, "Well, what if it was what if it was two men instead of two women? You'd have to choose." That I love it when people. There's certain things like I run into it most often in software where somebody says something. It's like, "Oh, now I my perspective shifts," and that's really helpful. And that was that was one of those for me. So thanks a ton for that. Oh man, that's good stuff. Um, so I, I see that we're coming up on close to an hour of talking together, and uh, you know uh, we don't have to to rush off right away. Uh, uh, I'm certainly happy to continue talking about this, or uh, but I also like to make sure that I uh, that I give the the guests an opportunity to talk about um, anything else, or to spend more time on things that we've already talked about. So um, uh, Neil, Rebecca, we we have some time left. Is there is there anything else we should talk about that we haven't covered yet, or or or, or aspects of things we have talked about that we should uh, continue on to? No. <laughs> well, actually, Neil, I would be interested in in sort of your perspective on how how, how do you feel with uh, with ThoughtWorks winning this award? What does it mean to you? Uh, I think it's I think it's great. I think it shows the uh, end result of acting with intention within ThoughtWorks because I know it's been our intention for a long time to do that. I think it's a reflection of 
you know, it's kind of silly to uh, create hostile workplaces for half the population. <laughs> you know, it's, it just doesn't make sense. And if you could create a company where half the population feels better working there than they do at other companies, then, you know, I think that's <laughs> real obvious benefits to that. And, I mean, and, you know, from a ThoughtWorks standpoint, but, but you know, I've been on projects, you know, there's a, a an oft-quoted Harvard study that, you know, having uh, females on a, a project raises the collective intelligence of the people on the project. And, but I've, I've seen that firsthand. I've been on all male projects and I've been on projects that have a, a mix of, of all sorts of things, not just gender, but all sorts of mixes. And you always get a broader perspective when you have a better mix of people. So, uh, yeah, I think it's good for ThoughtWorks as a whole that we have a more diverse population because we bring, I think, better, uh, capabilities to projects where we have a diverse group of people doing it cool. great yeah awesome well um i'm I, I i we i think we should have you i think we should have the both of you back on it would it would be great to hear um uh kind of how your efforts because they you know this is this sort of thing is always a, a journey not a destination um it'd be great to hear that and, and of course there's a million technical things that we could have talked about as well and still could so this of course our question about advice we always ask our guests to provide our audience uh, with a piece of advice um, that could be anything at all um, that they that they think is is relevant, and and of course the the the, uh, the fun part about this is that <laughs> you know as in most shows we've already gotten like a boatload of really good advice from our guests, but we still ask <laughs> you to do it one more time anyway. So Rebecca, what piece of advice would you like to share with our with our listeners? I think it's important for people to continue learning. And not just within their discipline, within their chosen discipline, um, but to expand their, their horizons. Um, and so remain curious, uh, remain confident in your ability to learn new things um, and um, explore things that, that, that you're passionate about because it's really quite, re quite rewarding in that context. Fantastic, and I love how well that ties with um, with Neil's uh, story at the beginning of how he, you know, wandered into a, a gallery and and stumbled onto the whole field of modern modern art by taking himself outside of his uh, area of familiarity. So that's that's awesome. You guys have uh, uh, you've both in reinforced each other's uh, 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 first and last questions. So that's great. So I I will say thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I know you're both super busy um but we love the fact that uh, that you were able to stop by uh, great conversations really looking forward to um to reading your book when it comes out next year and uh, and of course the uh, discussion about diversity was absolutely fantastic so thanks for both those things so i will thank you individually thank you neil for coming on the show today always a pleasure and thank you rebecca for coming on as well it's great to have you as well thank you so much craig appreciate it all right great well we will close it down there this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. 
You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guests today were Rebecca Parsons and Neil Ford. Our host today, and sadly for the last time, was the magnificent Craig Andera. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.